Revelation chapter 5, and I could just sit in chapters 4 and 5 for weeks. Because in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, we see the church in heaven. We see this amazing, marvelous, wonderful, heavenly scene. And it's all about worship. It's marvelous. It's encouraging. And I want to look again at that this morning. But there's a curious comment, a curious statement here that we need to deal with as well. So let's look again at the last four verses of chapter 5 as we ponder these things together this morning. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And Lord, again, we worship you this morning. We pray your blessing. We pray your understanding, we pray for your wisdom in considering the words before us. We pray that your words would live to us, Lord, and that our hearts would be touched and affected. And Father, as so often is the case, I wonder, what are you going to do? I read and I study and I come upon these things and wonder, how are you going to affect our hearts? How are you going to impact? What are you going to say? Not just in the words spoken here this morning, but Holy Spirit, I'm intrigued. How are you going to touch each individual person here? Well, I know you desire to, and I pray that you will give each of us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, because the church is still here, still listening, still waiting your coming, still looking forward to the day, Lord, when we will be in this place, and we will be among the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands worshiping, worshiping around your throne. Well, this morning, Lord, open our eyes. I pray, Father, the eyes of our hearts to see with understanding what your Spirit wants to teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Tell us the story again, John Boy. It's a line from one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's a tender scene at the end of the movie. I think I've shared this movie with you before, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. It's just heartwarming and charming. It's the homecoming, a Christmas story. It's that that Christmas special, the 1971 made-for-TV movie that ended up spawning the Waltons. Nine seasons of the Waltons, but this, I think, is the best. Throughout the movie, Mary Ellen talks about staying up late on Christmas Eve. She keeps talking about staying up to see the miracle. Are you going to stay up to see the miracle, Mama? Are you going to stay up to see the miracle with us, John Boy? She's planning on going out to the barn to witness the miracle. Well, at midnight, Mary Ellen, Jason, Ben, Aaron, Jim Bob, and Elizabeth are sitting on the stairs at the back of the house in the kitchen area as John Boy, who's just come home from looking for his father, who hasn't returned home yet, John Boy is obviously moved and concerned for his daddy. 
His eyes are filled with tears. And poignantly, as he sits there, Jim Bob quietly says, Tell us the story again, John Boy. And he begins. When Jesus was born, he was in a stable. And the first things to lay eyes on him, except for his mama and his papa, was the sheep and the goats and the cows and all the other animals that lived there. Jason says, those old dumb animals. And John Boy says, yeah, old dumb animals. They were the first ever to see Jesus' face. And ever since that night, animals all over the world wait up, and at the stroke of midnight, they kneel down and they pray and speak in human voices. Aaron then says, I wonder what they say. (laughs) Have you ever heard that old stable fable of animals in worship on Christmas Eve? I've wondered for years, after watching this movie every year, again and again, I've wondered, where, where does this come from, this concept, this idea of animals worshiping, speaking out, kneeling down on Christmas Eve at the birth of Jesus? That's got to have its roots somewhere. And if you look back, you find that in 1915, on Christmas Eve, Thomas Hardy published a poem called The Oxen. Let me read it to you. Christmas Eve and 12 of the clock... Now they are all on their knees. An elder said, as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease, we pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen, nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years, yet I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, come see the oxen kneel in that lowly Barton by yonder coom our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. And who among us, at least in childhood, then at one time or another, wonder if the animals could talk? Or ask the question, do they? Is there thinking there? Now you grow older and you let go of those childish things and you realize these things can't be. So where did Thomas Hardy get the idea? That animals were kneeling and worshiping and speaking on Christmas Eve. And you go back further, and it's all part of what I call our Christmas mashup. Most manger scenes today reflect the Christmas mashup. A conglomeration of Luke's account of Jesus' birth and Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi, along with Matthew's several prophecies fulfilled. Although what's interesting is if you read Matthew 1 and 2, you you realize that this happens over a period of a couple or three years, whereas Luke's account happens on the night of the birth. Still, we here in the West and even in the East, we mix in all of these things. There are apocryphal writings. Writings that we don't know where they came from. Mysterious, strange writings that speak of the birth of Jesus, Eastern and Western, so we blend those in along with our traditions and our modern Christmas carols, and we add a dash of imagination and creativity, combine it all into one manger crash, and we get the stable and the manger, the sheep, the ox, and the goats, the lambs. We get angels and shepherds and magi and the star and the haloed Mary and Joseph. Some traditions bring in a midwife, because you can't have a baby without a midwife, and we really need another statue in the mix. Some will add a little drummer boy. You never know what's going to be there. Some twisted individuals stick a little Santa Claus in their major scene. I don't know what's going on. It's a Christmas mashup, and finally you have the little baby all aglow. And again, what major scene would be complete without the animals kneeling down? But Luke never mentions animals. 
in his account of the birth of Jesus, he never says their manger side. Yes, he uses the word manger, and so we just assume that it's a barn filled with animals bleating and braying and making all the noise and they're breathing on the baby. We, we think that that must have happened because he was laid in a manger, but it doesn't say so in Scripture. So again, where did Hardy get the idea for his poem? Well, there are apocryphal accounts. Two of them specifically that speak of this, that stir the imagination and stir our traditions as well. One of them is called Pseudo-Matthew. I would advise against trusting anything in Pseudo-Matthew. There's also another account called The Birth of Our Savior, and these two old accounts claim that at Jesus' birth, an ox and a donkey bent their knees and worshipped, fulfilling an ancient prophecy. Well, wait, wait a minute. An ancient prophecy... What could that possibly be? Keep your finger in Revelation 5 and turn all the way back to the book of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And with just 14 verses on the slide behind me this morning, you better be turning in your Bibles. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. Check this out. I'll just start in verse 1 if you're still turning. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Verse 3. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey knows its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people... Do not understand. One more time, verse 3. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Do you? Do you understand your master's manger? This is spoken as an invective, really, against Israel. My people don't know their master's manger. An ox and a donkey know, but my people don't know. What's he saying here? My people don't know their master's manger. Well, a manger's a feeding trough. You know that. Not the wooden ones that we see in our manger scenes here in America, but probably a stone feeding trough. We've seen them all over Israel. They're always made of stone. What does this mean? A feeding trough. Do you know, do you understand your master's feeding trough? See, our master's manger is the place where he feeds us and where we find rest. Our master's manger. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Out of the mouth of the Lord, that's our food, our bread. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus also said, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So there in Bethlehem, house of bread, the one born in a manger is the master's manger. He's the one who feeds. He's the one who brings rest. 
Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 speaks of the master's manger that Israel does not know. And I would submit to you that Israel still does not know the master's manger today. That Israel somehow missed this. Now you might say, well wait, Rick, was Isaiah just making an illusion? Or was this intended to be a prophecy of the manger into which Jesus was laid? And if so, was it fulfilled in the humble, bent-kneed worship of an ox and a donkey at the birth of Christ? The ox and the donkey, they knew they worshipped Jesus at the manger. Is that what Isaiah is saying? (laughs) I think Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 is indeed prophetic. Because 750 years later, Israel missed the manger. Not my concern, Rachel. Just a base. (laughs) Think about that. Save Mary and Joseph and a few shepherds. Later on, some magi. Save a, a handful of people. Most missed the manger. An ox and a donkey would have known better. But as for the ox and the donkey worshiping... I don't think so. But don't be too disappointed, for there's another time that is no fable in a stable. There's another time spoken of in our text this morning, actually just before the world becomes highly unstable, a time where, yes, I absolutely do believe that the animals worship. Go back to Revelation chapter 5 and look at verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. John writes, and every created thing, articulate animals. Coherent creatures verbalizing vermin. Even fluent fish. Every created thing. The word created thing, and note this in your Bibles, is katisma, and it means all creatures. Everything created, nothing is excluded from this, and katisma tends to focus more on animals than any other kind of created thing. And this is different, by the way, than the living creatures. When you look up in verse 11, the living creatures and the elders, the living creatures there refers to the cherubim, or perhaps to the seraphim. Those amazing beings, angelic beings around the throne. But that word, living creatures, is zoan, and it indicates, again, angelic beings. Katisma talks about animals. And this is undeniable that animals in every area of creation worship God articulately in heaven, on earth, subterranean, and even on the seas. In all these areas. Now I know when I say this, someone in their brain is going, come on, animals suddenly speaking. My friends, there is no other way to read this. There's no other way to translate this and to understand this. This is one of those verses that forces faith because it is written as it is. And you either discount it, and by the way, discount Revelation 5.13 and you might as well discount Scripture. 
Because anytime you take a verse out of the Scripture, you go, ah, that's just, no, that's silliness, that's crazy, that's not truth. You pull Scripture out of Scripture, and you reduce Scripture, and suddenly, what can you trust? I've told you before, take it all or take none of it. So here in this verse, we're told that these living creatures actually stop in a wild and woolly moment, and they just praise the Lord. And I can't wait for this to happen. Because the reaction on planet Earth, I mean, think about this. This is after the rapture. This is before the tribulation. This scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, inserted here is to let us know of what takes place, where the church is. Chapters 2 and 3, remember? Seven different letters to the seven churches, to the whole church across 2,000 years. Suddenly, the church is now in heaven. And this takes place on the earth, under the earth, in the seas. Every creature, every living creature, every created thing. And at that time, all creatures, great and small, will suddenly stop mooing and cooing and squeaking and squawking and purring and roaring and (laughs) barking and snorting. All the creatures will stop what they're doing and they will just stand up and they will say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then they'll go back to chewing, you know, on the ground, whatever they were doing before. It's like a far side cartoon. Have you seen the one? It's one of my favorite ones. All the cows are standing up and they're sipping coffee and they're discussing Einstein's theory of relativity and they're leaning on fences and having these conversations. And all of a sudden one of them shouts, Car! And they all go down and they're chewing the grass. The car drives by. As soon as it's gone, they're back up having their conversation. But this is the opposite. This is the opposite. You drive down to Oak Harbor, the cows are in the field. They're just chewing and everything. And you look and you drive by nothing. But all of a sudden, standing up and praising the Lord, this will be an amazing moment. Can you imagine? The dog whisperer will be freaked out. (laughs) This true moment on the planet where again they say to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Wait, you really believe? I really believe this. Because it's just clear, plain language. There are no likes, there are no as ifs. There's no suggestion of a metaphor or an allegory here. Hey, remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey? And as he's riding in, all the disciples are around and and the crowds are getting caught up and shouting shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're putting palm fronds down on the road before him as he rides in there. And the people are worshiping and the Pharisees can't take it. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Look, if stones can cry out, so can every created thing. In fact, Psalm 148, verse 7 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and clouds and stormy wind, fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl. 
And in Psalm 150 verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord and everything will. Now we worship God, we praise the Lord simply in being as He created us to be. The animal that that functions as created is worshiping. The tree that lifts its branches is worshiping. Now the tree that falls on power lines is in rebellion, but the tree that is simply (laughs) standing there with branches outstretched is a testimony to the glory of God, to the beauty and wonder of who He is. But Revelation chapter 5 here, Oh, this sits on the precipice, the in-between of the ages. As John Walverd points out, the beauty and wonder of this scene are a startling contrast to the dark clouds of divine judgment falling upon the earth in the tribulation as revealed in the chapters to follow. The scenes of earth are always dark in comparison to the glory of heaven. Isn't that true? The scenes of earth are always dark in comparison to the glory of heaven. Revelation, he says, puts heaven and earth in proper perspective. And the true occupation of the child of God should be one of praise and worship of the God of glory while awaiting the fulfillment of His prophetic word. That's what we do. And what Walford points out is that this world is about to become a very different place. In fact, I want you to be prepared for that. Lord willing, on January 6th, when we open up Revelation chapter 6, we will see a very different scenario on this planet. Things will go dark very quickly. After the rapture of the church, after the church is called up to meet Him in the sky, and to forever then be with the Lord, the line between the spiritual realm and the physical realm will become very fuzzy. Right now, the two are pretty distinct, or at least seemingly so, from from our limited human perspective. But then, human rebellion will become shockingly outspoken. You think it's bad now? You think rebellion is wild these days? This is nothing like it's going to be. When people can actually see with their eyes and hear with their ears things of the spiritual realm and still reject God. In fact, vocally... Reject Him outright. And at that time, God's hand is going to weigh more heavily on the planet than at any time in history. I've said in the past, it will be like Old Testament times. It won't. It will be worse. It will be more dramatic. And God's intervention into the world, well, it's stunning. And He gives us a picture of that in Revelation 6-19. through My question to you this morning is, where will you be when the animals praise? Will you be here to see it? To be freaked out by it? To be terrified in that moment? Oh, what they're saying is glorious, it's wonderful, it's worship. But the fact that they're saying it, something's very wrong on the planet when the animals have to worship because very few others are. Where will you be? Listen, creation is already groaning. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, Paul is writing words of great encouragement when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, when it gets tough, when it's hard, when it's difficult, this is nothing. The glory will so far outshadow any struggle that you have right now, any hardship that I face today, will be incomparable to what's coming, to what's going to happen, to where we'll be. But Paul continues on and he says, for the anxious longing of the creation, the katesis, same root word of katesma, created things, the longing, the anxious longing of the katesis, the creation, waits eagerly for the, revel- for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul writes, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That's all creation, all created things, groaning and moaning and awaiting the sons to be revealed. At that time, Paul says, when all creation will be set free into the glory of the children of God. The reason why the revelation of Jesus Christ is so valuable to us and so important to us, aside from showing us Jesus Himself, the singular revelation, is that this book affords all who read it and hear it and heed it a promise and a warning of what's to come. And it is promising for those who believe. And it is warning for those who do not. Either way, This book is a blessing if we will hear it and heed it. The worship in Revelation 5, and you can go back there, the worship of Revelation 5 is simply a pause before the tribulation. A heavenly moment. A moment of great encouragement because again, the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, nowhere will be. I'm absolutely convinced these two chapters are here for that purpose, to show us, here's where you are. It's all good. Now here's what's happening on the planet, picking up in chapter 6. It's a pause before the wrath of the Lamb. But this morning, again, I am so enjoying chapters 4 and 5. Before we leave them, I want to talk about, I want to point out just three more things having to do with this realm of wonderful worship. Three issues of worship. Because the way to determine where you'll be when the animals praise, that is, in heaven or on the earth, it all depends on one thing. It depends on who you worship here and now. That's an easy way to decide where you'll be, to know where you'll be. Who are you worshiping now? Yourself? Your career? Your finances? You have something else in your life that takes precedence? Or are you worshiping God with all that you are? Worship will determine where you're going to be. By the way, worship begets worship. And that's the first thing I want you to note. Worship begets worship. There is a fascinating domino effect that we see happening throughout chapters 4 and 5. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 8, you see the four living creatures... And they never cease saying day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the cherubim say this, verse 9, 
When they give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him. They cast their crowns. They set their crowns. They put their crowns before Him. And they say, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things. And because of Your will, they existed and were created. And when the elders praise, go over to verse 9. It continues on. They can't stop themselves. They go into a new song. They break out and sing, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. I know them and they looks like it's there, but I believe it's us and we. It could go either way. But they're worshiping, they're praising, they're glorifying God. And when the elders praise... What happens next? Verse 11. I looked and many angels and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands are now saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And when they do that, when the myriads say that, (laughs) it's just too much for the whole of creation. So suddenly in this moment, creation breaks out and they begin to praise. You got Rover, you got Kitty, you got Mr. Ed. They're all praising. (laughs) And then what happens? Well, then in verse 14, the four living creatures keep saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It is perpetual praise. It's non-stop. Because worship begets worship. The more we worship, I mean hearts connected in worship. I'm not just talking song after song. I'm talking about a heart that is worshiping God. The more I worship, the more I want to worship. The more I'm around those, surrounded by worship, the more I want to worship all the more. And by the way, it's not just a church thing I'm talking about. It's an attitude. It's a lifestyle. And it's, it's an experience of worship. And when you get into that, hours can go by and you don't even know it. Because worship begets worship begets worship. And beyond a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, Psalm 33 verse 5 says, The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Have you ever stopped to wonder what would it be like if all the earth feared the Lord? If all the inhabited world worshipped God and stood in awe of Him. Let me tell you, it's going to happen. That will take place one day. Isaiah 61 verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Hey, I want to be in good voice for that day. I want to be practiced. I want to know all the songs. I don't want to be standing in the background, shuffling my feet, and wondering how it is that we worship God. Worship begets worship. You can never have too much. But hone in on the last four verses now of Revelation 5. Verse 11, I looked and I heard 
The voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And by the way, what John is trying to point out, trying to describe here is countless numbers. Innumerable, incalculable. A vast sea of worshipers literally circling out from the throne with the elders very close. And the cherubim right there. And around them the angels. Myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. So many it dwarfs the American megachurch. I'm not opposed, by the way, to the megachurch. The more people who can hear the name of Jesus proclaimed, the better. I'm opposed to somehow, to sometimes how some of the megachurches are run. More as businesses than as places of worship and fellowship. But the American megachurch has no clue. No Billy Graham or Harvest Crusade can conceive. Joel Osteen has no concept of such a crowd here. Innumerable, incalculable. And I believe the Hebrew pastor was was writing of this scene. When he says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22, You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Note that. This is prophetic in nature that he says, you not only have come to this heavenly Mount Zion and to the myriad of angels, but to the general assembly of the church. Why? Because the church is in heaven. Because the Hebrew pastor speaks of a time when the church is present around the throne of God as these circles upon circles, innumerable worshipers, all are praising the Lord. And understand this, in verse 11, there's more than a few angels, more than four cherubim, and are you listening? There's more than 24 elders mentioned here. Note that around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. It's the one time he doesn't say the 24 elders. He just says the elders. And then he describes the angels, the creatures, and the elders, saying the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The entire church is there. It's yet another proof. And they all know, as worship begets worship, they all know, number two, that worship belongs to the worthy. All worship. All worship. Something our star-entranced culture needs to understand. That worship belongs to the worthy. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. They were saying with a loud voice, this is everyone around the throne, you and I included, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now sit on that for just a second. We saw midweek that this lamb isn't just a lamb. If it was just a lamb, the Greek word would be aren. A-R-E-N. Aren. That's the word for lamb. The word that John chooses, that John uses for Jesus is arneon, which means little lamb. Pet lamb cute little little lamb but this is a little lamb slain it's a brutal picture of what would otherwise be sweetness and the worshipers around the throne who cry out worthy is the lamb they get it 
They see it. They understand the sweet innocence and the brutal bloodshed that belongs to Jesus. And so Jesus is worthy on both counts. Understand, He is worthy because intrinsically He is innocent and He has pure worth and pure value. But He is also worthy because He is the Lamb slain. He's worthy intrinsically. He's worthy intentionally. He's worthy because of who He is. He's worthy because of what He did. Nobody else can claim that. Nobody in all eternity can claim absolute worth simply because of who He is and because of what He did. And so the innumerable worshipers offer what is now called the sevenfold accrual, or the sevenfold build-up, we might say, of the little lamb slain. As we cry out, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, I've had a conversation with my mom for years. She understands when we say praise the Lord. She says, well, that means you're telling someone to do it. Okay. She never understood and struggles with the concept of someone saying bless the Lord. How do you bless the Lord? She'll ask me over and over. My mom, we've talked about this. How do you bless the Lord? How do you bless Him? You receive blessing from Him. You're blessed by Him. But how do you bless the Lord? What does that exactly mean? And we've been around the the corner on this conversation many times. But it's a great question to ask. Wait a minute. How are we giving these things to Jesus? Right? Because it says, worthy is He to receive power. Well, I thought He already had power. Worthy is He to receive riches. Is there anyone more wealthy? Worthy is He to receive wisdom. Um, smarter than you and me. Worthy is He to receive might and honor and glory and blessing. How does this work? He is worthy intrinsically. He is worthy intentionally. Follow the list through. The first one is power. The power, that's the dunamis. We've heard that word, that Greek word dunamis. It's because He knows how to handle it that He's worthy of it. And this is just power within He just is power, has power. The word riches there. Why is he worthy to receive riches? Because he knows how to spend it. We don't so much. But he's good with the checkbook. Wisdom. Because he knows when to use it. Might. Because he knows how to expend it. Now note this. Since he's worthy to receive power and might, aren't those just synonyms? Power and might? Might here in the Greek is different than power in the Greek. Power is dunamis. Might is ishkush, which is, which is exerted strength. So dunamis is inherent, and ishkush is exerted. So he's got both. He's got the power, and he knows how to use it. All right? And honor... Honor. Why is he worthy to receive honor? It's because he embodies all that is honorable. All worth and value. Worthy is he to receive glory, we sing, because he reveals glory. Because glory shows from him. By the way, honor and glory are almost always coupled in the Bible. 
You rarely see the word honor by itself, especially when you're talking about the Lord. It's always honor and glory, glory and honor, where Jesus is concerned because honor, again, speaks of his innate value, kind of like power speaks of his innate power. Honor is his innate honor. He's just honorable, but glory is the manifestation of that honor, is how that honor is seen. So he's worthy of both. As Paul writes 1 Timothy, oh no, sorry, Colossians 1.11 He prays that we might be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So there's power and might distinguished. And then 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Finally, the last word in this sevenfold accrual is blessing. Blessing. Because He deserves to be blessed. But we're back to the question. You read the list and go, yeah, but were these things to receive these things? That's, that's a little confusing in the language. Get this. It's your Greek lesson for the morning. Every word here, seven words, these are all in the Greek accusative nouns. Accusative nouns. Why does that matter? The accusative limits a word to the direct object of the sentence. So you could put it this way, all these words accuse Jesus of being all these words. We are just, that's our worship. We are accusing Him, we are declaring Him to be the one with all power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. We're saying, that's you, Lord. When we say, worthy are you to receive, it's the receive that's confusing for us in the English. But Jesus is the direct object. What we're saying here is that these seven things, this sevenfold accrual, are really, it's really a sevenfold list of his traits. It's who he is. He alone is worthy. These things belong to no one else, only to Jesus, who is the direct object of our worship. Which is why I say worship belongs to the worthy and no one else. We don't bestow these traits upon Him in worship. We worship because these things already belong to Him. Got it? Worship begets worship. And worship belongs to the worthy. But finally, number three, worship is the basis of all Creation, Verse 13, again, every created thing, every katisma, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's every created thing. And the weight of this to understand The power of what we read taking place here. It involves everything. That while nature perhaps has rebelled, specifically in humanity, while across the history of the world there have always been worshipers, there have also always been the rebellious. There's never been a time save the very creation of the world itself, there has never been a time where everything, every created thing, human or not, worship the Lord. But that day's coming. That time will happen. Because every created thing includes every knee joint and every tongue muscle 
of every creature. Paul proclaims it, and now we know he prophesied this about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Human, oxen, donkey. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so on that fictional Christmas Eve of 1933, John Boy Walton told his brothers and sisters when Jesus was born, it was in a stable. And ever since that night, animals all over the world wait up, and at the stroke of midnight, they kneel down and they pray and speak in human voices. And Aaron asks, I wonder what they say. Well, now we know. They say praise to the Lord. They say to Him who sits on the throne and to the little Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The Bible speaks specifically of that time when a non-fictional, apocalyptic miracle will take place. Rather than a fictional, apocryphal miracle, this is a non-fictional, apocalyptic miracle and the animals will praise. And by the way, what interests me in all this worship, as fantastic as the scene is, I mean, when you read through Revelation 4 and 5, it's eye-catching, it's ear-catching, it's heart-stopping. It is just overwhelming as everything takes place and almost to the point of being a cacophony of worship, high volume. And for all of this, it seems to me that at the end, The elders, the church, they fall down and they worship, perhaps in complete silence. Let's pray. Father, we love to worship You. It really does draw out our heart's desire. We we find when we give ourselves over in worship, Lord, we find the most amazing peace. We find the deepest place of comfort we recognize that you have authority over all things and we can rest in that and Lord there is a time where our worship is simply silent where we are silent before you because Lord you are so amazing Father, I pray that You will continue to train us up as worshipers of the little Lamb that was slain. That we would look to the sweet innocence and recognize the brutal bloodshed of Jesus. And that our worship would be pure and honest and real. Father, sometimes shouted from the mountaintops and sometimes whispered from the prayer closet. And sometimes, Lord, even in complete silence, before the throne and before our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Develop in us a passion and a deep longing for worship. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I confess to you, I don't fully understand verse 13 of chapter 5. How is that possible? Can you even imagine? If Reggie had ever done that, I would run screaming out of the house. <laughs> but it's faith. And it's recognizing that, well, he said that time's coming. That's going to happen. So I'm going to believe him. We were last night out looking at, at Christmas lights. We drove over to a, a friend's house and she has a, a display out, an amazing Christmas display. And, and we went over there and we took uh, with us uh, Rayleigh, Mike and Carrie Hoffman's granddaughter. She was over, we were watching her last night. So she rode over with us, Honor Naomi, David, and myself and Rayleigh. And we drove out there saw the little Christmas village and then we were driving around down on West Beach looking at some pretty amazing Christmas lights and then as we turned around and we started heading back it was very dark Rayleigh who, who talks about 7,000 words a minute I believe is I, I think that's about right um, was just talking to a blue streak and suddenly she stops and it's quiet for a minute and she says where are we? <laughs> where are we? do you know where we are? I don't know where we are do you know where we're going? <laughs> And of course, I had to play with her. I said, I know where we're not. We're not home yet. Where are we going? Well, we're going to my house. How do you know how to get there? (laughs) Well, I've been there before. Yeah, but but how do you know? I I know. And she fell silent, and it was all fine. See, that's, that's faith. For some crazy reason, she actually believed that out on a dark night on West Beach home, or West Beach Road, I could find my way home. She distrusted. That's all faith is. It's looking at God and saying, you know the way home. You know what's going to happen. You know my life. You know what's going to take place in my life. What am I worried about? I'm just going to look at the Christmas lights. I'm just going to enjoy the ride. Because my Abba, my Papa, my Father, He knows the way. And that's faith. And it all begins there. And if you have never trusted Jesus with your life, you know what you're doing? You're striving. And you're freaked out and you're worried about all the things of this world. And God is so powerfully reminding me of this right now. Just trust me. I got it. I got it. He has you. And if you've never taken that step of faith to believe Him, what are you waiting for? Get into the back seat for a change and just say, Father, You know the way. Listen, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Put your faith in Jesus today and let Him get you home. He will not fail you. Well, then what do I do? You worship. You just worship Him the whole way. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do it this morning. If there's any other area in your life where you're lacking faith or you're struggling to believe Him for what He says or perhaps you haven't done what you know He's asked you to do, why don't you do that today? If you've never been baptized, if you've never prayed to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, if there's anything that you just need to acquiesce or to abdicate or to hand over to God, I invite you to do it while we stand and sing together. Won't you come forward? Thank you.